Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Dr. Rick Bozhart, who is a plastic surgeon down in Florida. And in this conversation, we talk about his run-in with the DEI push within the medical institutions as well as in the surgical professional organizations. This should be quite troubling stuff to anybody who cares about their physical health as meritocracy erodes and is replaced by equitocracy. Dr. Rick is a fascinating guy. We get to talk about noses and ears, and we also get into the history of plastic surgery, which I didn't know was hundreds and hundreds of years old. If you're interested in more from Rick, definitely check out my wife's channel. She's got a couple interviews with him, and he's also got plenty of articles out there, links to which will be down there in the description. Without further ado, here is Dr. Rick Bozhart. How long have you been practicing? Oh my gosh, uh, depends on what you define as practice. It's been 45 years since I finished medical school, so I've been an MD for 45 years. I've been an actual practice in my current iteration of the plastic surgeon in uh, at Lake County, Florida for 35 years. Okay. And the rest of the time was largely spent in the Navy, at which time I was a general surgeon. Okay. So I'm, I'm an old guy. Yeah, I'm one of them. What what was the Navy like for you as a surgeon? Are you just flying around the world, saving? Oh people? my gosh! I I can't say enough good things about it. Uh, I I have to admit I didn't go in because of any ultra patriotism. Although I I always liked the Navy, I like the idea of the Navy, and I'm very proud of my military service. But the practical uh, fact was that I had no way to pay for medical school, and the Navy, uh, all of the branches of the military provided uh, scholarships for medical students and uh, liking the Navy and the ocean as I do, that was the logical branch of service. And they paid for my medical school. I trained uh, in general surgery in the Navy. And of course, all of that led to an obligation to pay back with service, which I did uh, for four years before I was able to uh, get back out into the civilian world. Yeah, uh, sure. I can't, th great memories, made great friends. Uh, I, I think I received excellent training. Um, and um, uh, I would encourage anyone considering medical school that has a problem with uh, how to, you know, do this without going to debt to the tune of two and three hundred thousand dollars. Military is a great way to go. Yeah. How much time was that? Was your deployment on ships out in the ocean? I had one year. Okay. I was a ship's doctor for one year, which is a very interesting experience. Is it? Yeah, it, it's. It's truthfully not a whole lot, medically speaking. Um, 500 healthy young men, you know, you don't see yeah. a lot. 
Yeah. Um, you do see a number of things that in quantities that you don't see in, in the civilian world. I, I won't go into details on that. <laughs> uh, but we actually we had some the rumors of had... Navy men might be a little true, huh? Oh my goodness, yes, yeah. Um, but uh, we had a, a wonderful period of time when we were rescuing Vietnamese uh, boat people that were out in the ocean escaping uh, South Vietnam um, after you know we. We left Vietnam and North Vietnamese took over. They were hunting down all the South Vietnamese that had helped the, the Americans. And so a lot of them were leaving uh, in boats by the thousands. And so yeah. we picked up probably a total of 115 uh, refugees. In fact, one of them reached out to me a few years ago uh, when he turned uh, 40 years of age to thank the people on the ship that had taken him and his family on board. And he came across my name in the Navy archives. And of course he did what anybody would do. He went to Facebook and found me on Facebook and contacted me. And we've been friends ever since. Wow. Yeah. I just ran into uh, the guy who runs the liquor store down the street from us. He, he was one of the, he came across on a boat um, from Vietnam. Uh, he was separated from his family too. He was just a kid. He was like six or seven. There's and some really incredible untold stories out there that I think at some point in time, we need to archive those before we lose them. And uh, maybe, you know, it could produce, I'm sure, a number of books and even maybe some movies, because I've heard some stories that would just curl your hair about things that people have gone through to escape and, and get to the U.S. Yeah. And it brings into sharp uh, relief uh, the current issues around... Uh immigration and asylum seeking that we're we're looking at it, right now it uh it truly does it truly does by so, the way i love the name of your show conversation uh i, I like that it uh, uh it means that i can't get too excited i can't start swearing and spitting so it, it's going <laughs> to you want to i'm fine with that <laughs> i'll have to behave civilly which which there are there are people that dispute that i can do that but uh, and that's another whole story but I'll do my best. Uh, really? Is are are you the doctor with the uh, raging bedside manner? Is that what you're implying? No, I'm I'm the doctor who is permanently banned for using continuously disrespectful language to my my superiors and the organization to which I belong. That, that's who I am. Okay. Uh, I'm famous or infamous for my my failure to be respectful and for my failure to abide by the rules. Is this uh, is this a principled stand, or are you just a bull in a china shop? Um, no, I've never been much of a bull in a china. I've never been an activist. I've never been. I've never walked a picket line. I've never joined a protest. Um, probably the the most uh, extreme thing I've ever done is, is write letters to my congressman to complain about one thing or another. Um, and yet, uh, at this very you know late stage of my life and my career. Uh, I find myself in the middle of a uh, running battle with an organization that I belong to for over 30 years that I've always respected and been very proud of. And that has now taken a turn for the illiberal, extreme and radical um, uh, politicking and ideology that I, I was, you know, really disturbed by and pushed back and, and they pushed harder. Yeah. It, does this uh, professional organization happen to have an acronym, or did they steer clear of that? Uh, well, no, it's, it's called, you know, it's the American College of Surgeons, which, you know, everyone abbreviates ACS. So when I say ACS, that's what I'm referring to. Um, that's as close to an acronym as you're going to really get. Um, 
I don't know how much you want to hear about it. Uh, no, I, I do. One one aspect of what I've been covering about just the um, rapid change in um, values in our elite has been uh, a lot of that has led me to the professional organizations are spearheading a lot of these questionable decision decisions around hiring practices, around you know what. what what values these professional organizations enshrine, um, which are increasingly more social justice and um, at the at the expense of objectivity and meritocracy, from what I've seen. And so if that's what you've seen as well, I, I'm totally on board with hearing your experience. That is absolutely what I am seeing, um, uh, without a doubt. Uh, something I never, ever expected to deal with. Uh, especially in the profession of medicine and, and my own subspecialty of surgery. Um, there are a few places that I can think of in the world where you want merit to count more and for the, the striving for excellence should be the most important thing. Um, I, I, it's, it's such an obvious thing that I, I've always taken it for granted uh, and always assumed that, you know, when I, sought to to um, become a physician and made that that big decision in my life um, i tried to get the best education that i could um, i happened to go to the university of miami school of medicine uh, u of m is not necessarily the most widely regard highly regarded school um, around but the school of medicine as long as i can remember has always been very very highly regarded um, and uh, i got an excellent education and the Navy kind of directed my my path in terms of my postgraduate training, but I lucked out and I ended up in a program out in Oakland, California that looking back with a superb clinical program to train surgeons. And I came out of it feeling fully qualified to go out and practice surgery. Uh, and then finally, when I decided to, to go into plastic surgery, uh, I thought, well, I'm gonna shoot for the best program that I can possibly think of getting into which happened to be back in Miami, and that was under a, a, a surgeon by the name of uh, Dr. Millard, D. Ralph Millard, uh, who was voted the one, one of the top 10 plastic surgeons of the millennium by his own association of plastic surgeons. How, how long has plastic surgery been around? A thousand oh, years? Oh my God, it goes, it goes back to the fifth century. As far as an established uh, specialty, it's probably around 1920s. Okay. The, it was one of the early specialties that uh, a formally became part of what is known as the American Board of Medical Specialties. That is the organization that provides certification in all specialties. If you want to be a board-certified doctor of any specialty, uh, you need to be trained in a, a um, program that is accredited by the ABMS, which the American Board of Plastic Surgery is one of those. And that goes back to about the 19, late 20s or early 30s when it was uh, uh, first formally recognized. So it's an old specialty. The plastic surgery goes back to the fifth, fifth century. I mean, he goes back. Uh, it's a really, really old, old specialty. We, uh, the pressing issue of social justice corrupting our society, um, just aside for just a minute, could you tell me more about the history of plastic surgery? Because in popular imagination, it means like a nip and a tuck. It's cosmetic, but it's much more than that, correct? What, and what is well, the history yeah. of this? Uh, it's probably the most misunderstood specialty of all. People have, they, That's what people think. They have a idea that uh, it's synonymous with cosmetic surgery. Cosmetic surgery is one aspect of, of plastic surgery. Uh, then you have the whole other aspect of reconstructive surgery. 
Yeah. And oh my goodness, when you start to break that down, I mean, if you if you put cosmetic aside, uh, you have microsurgery, craniofacial surgery, hand surgery, um, surgery for congenital deformities. Uh, plastic surgery has been in the forefront of things like repairing cleft lips and palates and that sort of yeah. thing. Um, all kinds of wound care. Um, uh, ironically, the, the very first uh, kidney transplant was performed by a plastic surgeon, believe it or not. Why? Um, Just because he had particular skills or... Uh, it was well. It was on a set of twins, so the issue of rejection did not come into play. This is before they had the the more sophisticated anti-rejection. Uh, I wish I could give you names, but I'm, I've always been bad on on yeah. my history and names. But uh, yeah, it, it goes back that the we still use techniques today that were first used um, and documented in history back in the fifth century in India. There was a technique of plastic surgery to reconstruct noses that requires um, moving tissue from the person's forehead down onto the nose, something we call a forehead flap. Uh, it's still one of the best and very widely used techniques for rebuilding a nose that has had to been partially or completely removed for cancer, for example. Hmm. So we're still using techniques that date back to, to really, really ancient days. Um, just on a technical note or etymological note, by plastic, it doesn't mean the substance. It means more like the... Uh more like the these the essence of that word right like that which is molded that which is moved exactly exactly the word plastic comes from the greek plastikos and that is the to have the property of being moldable or bendable and you know with exceptions a lot of plastics are very very uh flexible and able to be molded and shaped and of course a lot of what we do involves molding and shaping uh, soft tissue, skin, muscle, and things to to create, you know, to replace things that are missing, to to correct things that are deformed. Um, and there's even a, a term plastic. You can use the term plastic as applied to any operation. Uh, there are certain characteristics that, that plastic surgery has that are unique to our specialty. Uh, and they may not be unique in the sense that nobody else does them, but it's unique in the sense that we take it to the ultimate extreme. And that is, you know, a, we, I, I watched because I was a general surgeon, so I know what that field is like, and, and I know what general surgeons are like, because I was one. Uh, I know that plastic surgeons, uh, by training, are much more gentle in how they handle the tissues and how they dissect tissues and how they do things. We use, um, we don't use, for example, staples to close incisions. Uh, we close incisions by hand using fine sutures, and we make mm -hmm. a lot of effort to try to get the best possible scar we can out of it. Um, we try to always have in front of us what my my boss, Dr. Millard, used to call the ideal beautiful normal. Uh, even if you're doing reconstruction, you have to have a goal. You have to have something you're shooting for. Uh, it's not enough to put a blob of tissue, for example, on someone's face to replace a nose. What you have to do is put something that looks like a nose and has all the, the, the contours and the so forth of a nose. And so there's a lot of planning involved. I mean, I don't know that I can make an incision without drawing a line first. I mean, everything is drawn out and planned. Um, the, the process is a much more meticulous and delicate process. We are much more critical uh, I know that I will not accept results that would be perfectly fine to a lot of surgeons because they don't meet the standards that I was trained to aspire to in what I do. Um, so there's a, a lot of differences that, that go along, yeah. not only in, in what we do, but how we do it as well. 
Yeah, the, the underlying philosophy. You're working with flesh in a particular way, um, whereas another surgeon might be more focused on removing a malignancy or solving a problem of which is health related. You guys are more holistic. You're working with the flesh. You understand scar tissueing, uh, contours, and maybe even stresses over time of what any given particular body part's going to be well, useful for. I, I, I love I love the the direction tenor of your thing because I, I love talking about what I do. I mean, it's, I've been doing this for thirty five years, and it was the hardest thing I ever had to do to train in this because of the program that I went to. But uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, you have to always maintain an order of priorities. Uh, when treating, for example, a skin cancer, it's it's one thing to to pay attention to you know removing the cancer and leaving the least deformity possible, but the priority is not to limit the deformity. The priority is to remove the cancer, mm -hmm. and you do what you have to do to do that. And one of my boss's uh, maxims was, you know, to his referring doctors was, "Don't worry about the deformity. You take care of the cancer, give the deformity to me, and I'll I'll correct it. I'll fix it." Um, he was very big on principles. Uh, Dr. Millard wrote an incredible textbook. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I've never seen a textbook like it called The Principalization. Uh, I think he made up the word principalization of plastic surgery. And what he did was every chapter, there were 33 chapters in the book, and every chapter was a principle. A uh, principle could be as simple as diagnose before treating. In other words, if you're going to provide a treatment, you better have a diagnosis that that treatment will apply to. Um, and another would have been something like, um, um, uh, well, one of his his uh, uh, things was to uh, go for broke. That is, you know, every time you approach an operation, go for, go for the, the the best, most you know, perfect result that you can. Uh, if you don't get it, well, at least you tried. But you know, you never shoot and accept something less than that. So there are 33 of these principles that, that applied. And the thing that was kind of unique about the book was that uh, it was a book that will be as relevant 50 years from now as it was when he wrote it, uh, because it's not about a specific operation, because operations come and go. Um, but it's about principles behind the things that you do. Um, I, I can't really say enough about it. I've probably read that book three or four times. Yeah. Uh, one of my most valued possessions is a leather-bound uh, copy signed by him that he gave to every one of the people that trained with him. Wow. But uh, absolutely, yeah, this it's a whole different way of, of, of practicing surgery um, than anything that I've ever seen. There is a uh, tie-in to the current cultural zeitgeist when you brought up the idea of the ideal beautiful, normal. Those three words are um, castigated in our elite institutions now as um, owing to power structures and owing to, um, you know, they, they have all these words for it, racism, colonialism, whatever they want to, to do in order to undermine those terms. But pursuing the ideal, beautiful, normal, applying that that goal, which is ideal, so it's not real, it's an ideal. And then the beautiful, again, is subjective. And then the normal is, um, it's kind of, a, it's a hazy concept. It's, it, it kind of is subjective, but it's more of a, a broadly applied kind of take that we have in our brain. Applying that as a core function of your, your life's work, um, I, I'm trying to think of the question, like, how did, how have you, what does that mean? What is that goal that I ideal, beautiful, normal, and 
Is that still the goal that is being fostered in students today of your work? Well, you're right. I mean, you have to be very careful because these days a lot of words are taken on meaning that they were never intended to take. Uh, and people start to to um, uh, critique and, and criticize and, and, and categorize the according to to certain things. I mean, if you if there, uh, let's see if I can give you an example. Um, when doing a rhinoplasty, for example, you know, people that come in for rhinoplasty are typically people that have large noses. They have, you know, a big hump on their nose. They have a hooked nose. A lot of times they have an ethnic nose. Okay, um, you know, the people that are from the Middle East. I have a tendency to have a larger nose than people from, from say, you know, Northern Europe. Um, and so the goal for some people is to make that, that nose look as much like, you know, a Caucasian nose or, or a Northern European nose as possible. Uh, and that, that's been done. I mean, part of what you do is you seek out the patient's desires. That's one of the, the goals of plastic surgery. One of the things that, that, that not to get off track here because I want to answer the no, question, but yeah. um, you know, part of social justice is comes down to treating people as groups, and treating people as groups is anathema to medicine. Medicine does not treat groups. A doctor treats an individual patient in front of them. So when a patient comes to see me, you know, I try to establish uh, what their goal and desire is. You know, they may tell me this outright, and they come in and say, "I want bigger breasts." I want a smaller nose. I want, you know, I want to get rid of the, the double chin. Um, so sometimes it's very specific and sometimes it's just, I don't like the way I look. I mean, what can you do for me? Which is a very difficult question to answer because mm-hmm. uh, unlike a lot of surgeons, I don't like to, to put out my opinion. I, I tell most people, you look perfectly fine. Anything you do is based on, on what you're trying to accomplish. But back to what I was saying, one of the things that has happened in plastic surgery and going back to the example of the rhinoplasty is that We've gone from techniques and surgeries that essentially produce a very, very um, consistent product, which is this little bob nose that you can always tell someone had a nose job. I mean, it's just pretty obvious because they often don't look natural. And they've gone from that to trying to produce a nose that is ethnically authentic. So if you get a a person from an Arab country or uh, you get a black uh, person, that um, has a, the the nose that is commonly seen that is somewhat thick, um, has thick skin, um, and they come in trying to see if they can improve their appearance. You're not going to try to turn that nose into, gosh, the, the 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 poster boy for this is Michael Jackson. I mean, his his nose went through multiple yeah. surgeries to produce something that looks so bizarre and 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 out of out of you know any match to his his face uh, but you try to produce something that's going to be a aesthetic improvement based on your conversation with the patient uh, but yet will be you know ethically and, and racially and so forth congruent uh, with that individual yeah. um, that yeah that's the goal cosmetic surgery is is defined by the fact that you're taking something that is basically considered normal it may not be pretty. I mean, the, the person's nose may not be pretty and their, their breasts may be saggy, uh, but they're normal. They're, this is, you know, no one would say you're disfigured or deformed. Uh, and you're trying to make it better than normal. And that's the goal of cosmetic surgery is to, su- to supersede the normal. Huh. In reconstruction, you're taking something which has been deformed or damaged uh, by accident, by surgery, by, by bad genetics, and you're trying to restore that to normal. So 
that's where you have to have some idea of what you're shooting for. If you don't have that, um, then you're kind of walking blindly. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the golden proportion or the golden ratio. Has that ever come up in any conversation you've ever had? I geeked out on that. Okay. Well, yeah. that's that's something which is, you know, that, that exists throughout nature. You know, if, if it's very consistent. Uh, it's a ratio that you find all through nature. You know, butterfly wings have it. Uh, if you look at something like okay. uh, the, the Parthenon in, in Athens, Greece, uh, the Parthenon is constructed so that all over the Parthenon there are things that are in a golden ratio. And a face, a beautiful face that, you know, most people would agree uh, is a beautiful, attractive face is going to have golden proportions. We don't use them practically, but they're there and we Real unconsciously sound. see them. Yeah. So when, when you see someone, you say, oh, that's, a, that's an attractive individual. A lot of times what you're doing is you're processing in your head uh, an image that is based on, you know, expectations that may have developed uh, over the course of a lifetime from culture and society and, and this and that. Yeah. And it's, and that's that's fungible. It doesn't stay the same all the time. So it's an interesting profession because, you know, we're we're I call it the the surgery of identity. Um, you know, you mm -hmm. want to make sure that when you do something on somebody that you don't so disturb their identity that yeah. you make them unrecognizable, particularly to themselves. I mean, yeah. they're, they're people that are crippled by bad plastic surgery and even by good plastic surgery that didn't produce the result that they were expecting. Yeah. You know, um, just as an aside, um, a long time ago, I was working at a Starbucks and it was a really busy day and I was kind of just tripping out because I was getting exhausted. And I just, I was walking around the cafe, cleaning up after everybody. And for some reason I thought, what if there were just noses and my brain just started filtering out everything except for noses. And I just watched all the different people's noses and there were so many different shapes and they're all kind of weird because noses are just weird. They're weird things. So I'm finally talking to somebody who spent years considering the nose. And I'm wondering if you have any nose facts for me, because I know like, uh, just like off the top of my head, like there's a reason why, let's say people from the middle East have that kind of nose because they're in arid climates and right. The nasal cavity. And then there's probably a relationship between the nasal cavity and the cheekbones and the forehead. You've probably considered all these things from an ethnic, uh, point of view and the ethnic, differences are owing to adaptations to the environment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I'm going to disappoint you. Oh, okay. You don't have any nose facts. <laughs> I, I know exactly what you're saying because it's an occupational hazard. I can't walk out there in the public, you know, out in public and look at people 
and not be trying to break down what I'm looking at. Why that? Why did that person catch my eye? Mm-hmm. Um, even when I'm doing other things uh, on a patient, for example, I will often look at the nose and say, hmm, "Is that a good nose?" And I'll start breaking the nose down. Okay, is 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 that a nice slope to the top of the nose? Uh, is the the tip of the nose not too pointy? It's not too low, not too high. Mm. Are the nostrils a, a proper oval? Are they not too big? Um, so we're constantly assessing and reassessing. What's interesting is that you can walk in a crowd of people, and you will immediately zone. You won't give most people a second look because they look normal. You know, normal. Uh, they meet all the criteria in your mind that you define as, as a normal appearance. But you get that one person who has this this huge honker of the nose and that jumps out at you because it's just it doesn't fit. It's not it's not there's not a balanced look to that. Um and unfortunately, you know, some people think that everybody needs to be beautiful and have perfect features, but there are many people that that you identify with because their features are not normal. You know, a uh, you take a Barbara Streisand, you give her a nose job, and you've destroyed her face. I mean, you truly have. Um, you take a Jimmy Durante, and you give him a nose job, and, and you've ruined uh, an iconic individual's appearance. Hmm. Um, so you got to be careful sometimes that you don't try to do too much. I, I talk a lot of people out of surgery. I see people come in, especially as I've gotten older and more conservative. Uh, I see people all the time, and I look at them and say, oh, you know, this is... You need to think about this because, you know, what you're asking for, sure, it can be done, but sometimes you have to ask the other question, should it be done? Um, and I will tell some people, you are foolish. I have, I've said that a number of times. You know, you have some medical issues. This is not a medically necessary operation. Um, you've lived your life this way. You, you know, you're married. Your husband or your wife loves you. Your kids and your grandkids are delighted with you. Why would you want to do something now that carries a surgical risk? Um, carries no guarantees. Uh, there's not a plastic surgeon, or for that matter, a surgeon alive, who's going to guarantee a patient a specific outcome. I mean, anyone doing that is a fool, um, and you probably should run from that type of a physician. Um, but you know, it's it's one of those things where we're not we're not the magic bullet for for people's problems. You know, I I think that it's an extension of wanting to look your best, which is a natural human trait. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, a natural thing for people to to want to uh, blend in within their culture. So, you know, someone is, and the the people that don't do it stand out because they're the outliers. They're the goths and the people that are heavily tattooed and pierced and this and that. But for most people, you know, they're going to comb the hair, they're going to run they're going to shave, they're going to trim their beard. Uh, they're going to take some time to, to pick an outfit of clothing that's going to look reasonably matched and, and current with respect to the fashions of the day. Uh, and they're going to go out there, you know, wanting to put their best foot forward. Plastic surgery is an extension of that. It's just a little bit more extreme example. Um, but um, uh, it, it can be carried to an extreme where it becomes a fixation or an obsession or that sort of thing. And part of my yeah. role is to try to weed those people out because you do not want to be operating on people that have expectations that, are from the very get-go we're not going to be met we're not realistic at all yeah there is a um popular writer um mary harrington uh she's a british uh writer 
Uh, she just does a lot of op-eds, but she's a wonderful writer. And she has been critiquing the, um, the excessive amounts of stress that people are putting on so-called gender transition and how the idea that there's such a thing as a, well, the idea of the trans person or the trans kid specifically is owing to a conception of ourselves that she calls the meat Legos, that people are starting to think of ourselves as just, we can swap out these body parts and, and there's no, there's nothing essential to how we function other than like what our will wants to function. Um, that's an extreme example, but I'm wondering if you can chart or, um, you already made a, a, a line in the sand between reconstructive and cos cosmetic surgeries. And those are two different ethical, uh, you know, rubrics that you apply to a cosmetic surgery as opposed to a reconstructive surgery. I'm just wondering how have you, um, manicured or maintained a healthy ethic with regard to modifying body modification, non-necessary body modification. And where is it head? Where do you see it heading with, uh, you know, technology is, um, and, and just human, uh, desire to look the best or look what they want to look like. My best answer for that uh, is going to be that when I was contemplating plastic surgery, when I was first exposed to it, um, I was as a medical student. It was just for two weeks. I did a two-week rotation on plastic surgery. Uh, and at that point in your career, you know so little, and you're so, you know, you're so focused on, on getting through and, and, and uh, successfully, you know, completing your education, getting your MD degree, that I don't think you have the ability to really... Um, understand everything about it. I did uh, rotation in plastic surgery at the general surgery resident for a couple of months with a plastic surgeon in the Naval Hospital. Uh, and that cemented for me uh, a fascination because I concluded that what I was doing as a general surgeon was life-saving. You know, we saved lives, we cured cancer, we, we removed ruptured appendices, we took care of trauma patients. So it was life-saving. But it produced, you know, a lot of times you produce a very significant deformity. When you cut off a breast for cancer, that's a pretty disfiguring thing to do. And then I came to plastic surgery and realized that unlike what I was doing, which was life-saving, plastic surgery was life-changing. And I like that. That, huh. that just spoke to me. And that's, that's when I made, when I came to that realization, that's when I concluded. So as I was contemplating going into plastic surgery, I had to deal with the question that you've asked, what about cosmetic surgery? Because a lot of my peers uh, felt that I was really turning my back on real surgery, that I was doing something which was now trivial, um, yeah. you know, it was the domain of the well-to-do and the vain yes. people and so forth. And so I posed this question to my boss, Dr. Millard. Dr. Millard had one of the busiest, biggest uh, cosmetic practices uh, you could possibly have. This is in the day before the internet, before there was even advertising. Uh, doctors couldn't advertise back then. And yet he had a more than two-year waiting list of people to have cosmetic surgery with him. And I asked him how he reconciled all the training we went through uh, in doing cosmetic surgery. And, and his answer has stuck with me. He said, Rick, um, if you can't take something normal and make it better than normal, you will never be as good as you can be at taking something abnormal and making it normal. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the, the skills and the thinking and the planning that we apply to our cosmetic surgery translates directly into skills that we can use in the area of reconstruction. And you have to be careful. Like I said, it, that's, you know, there's, 
there is a healthy desire to improve yourself. If someone comes in and they're, they're 60 years old and they look 75 and they tell you, you know, I, I feel great. I look great, but everyone looks at me and thinks I'm old. Um, you know, the, you, the desire to, to have your appearance more in balance with, you know, the way you think and feel about yourself. I don't think that's unreasonable. I don't think that's outrageous or, or excessive. Um, you get a young lady comes in that has, and I've seen this many, many times, literally has no breasts. I mean, she comes in and, and she has, she's got a, a chest like a boy, but she's, you know, obviously a girl. We won't go into the whole gender thing at the moment, but, okay. but you look at her and you say, my God, in any, any, any normal uh, situation, this would be considered a reconstructive situation, not cosmetic, but insurance will never cover that. Okay. Um, I've done patients where they had one breast that developed and one breast didn't. Um, you get some girls that have attractive breasts that just want to be fuller. Um, and I can do that for them. Um, is that right or wrong to do? Uh, I guess there are people that would say that we shouldn't be doing that. Other people say, go for it. Is this, uh, I think it comes down to the fact that I'm, I'm not trying to sell my services. Uh, I have never tried to talk anybody into cosmetic surgery. Uh, if anything, I do the opposite because the longest part of any consultation that I make with my patients is in covering the complications and making sure they understand the limitations and the complications that can arise from what they're contemplating doing. Once I've done that and I inform them, and I think that what they're asking for is reasonable, I'm happy to, to do that. Um, there was also an interesting, uh, do you remember the movie uh, Doc Hollywood with uh, 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 Michael J. Fox? Uh, so I knew it. He was on his way to, to a plastic surgery training program uh, in California and, and got waylaid because his car had a mechanical or something in a little town in Georgia where he was stuck for a while. And he, he grew to love the, the townspeople. And ultimately he came back to that and became a town doctor. But um, that was based on a book and I met the author. Um, and uh, one of the things that um, came out of that was when he was explaining about why do cosmetic surgery, he was saying, well, uh, that's because the the income that I derive from doing cosmetic surgery frees me to be doing, you know, reconstructive surgery on people that can't afford it. So it was this altruistic uh, uh, idea. Okay. That's fine. But if you look at the way most plastic surgeons practice, they're not doing that. You know, uh, how many, how many, you know, free operations do you have to do to compensate for doing a ton of cosmetic surgery? I've done mission trips uh, numerous times overseas to provide cosmetic, uh, reconstructive surgery, not cosmetic, reconstructive surgery uh, on uh, indigent uh, children and individuals. Uh, it's one of the one most wonderful things I've ever done. Uh, but I don't claim that, you know, I do cosmetic surgery because it provides me the income to do that. I, I do that just because I think it's a responsibility I have to do that. Uh, but some people will say cosmetic surgery is a way to pay or, you know, pay for the reconstruction that doesn't pay very well. And it, it really, truly does not pay very well. Really? Why? Because it's not necessary and usually it's just theory. people don't have, yeah. I, I have a theory. Uh, number one, it's not like, it's not going to save someone's life to, for example, to build a breast. Um, if a, um, uh, a person, um, uh, has a skin cancer and you take it off and, and you, pr you produce a disfiguring scar, they can live with a scar. I mean, you can go about a perfectly normal life with a scar. 
Um, so I think that whether it's a, a conscious or unconscious decision, I think that a lot of insurance companies weigh, uh, not insurance companies necessarily, but it, it's the, the groups that value surgeries. There, there are books that provide a value for different operations so that you know what you should be charging for the work that you do. They terribly undervalue reconstruction. I mean, they, what I get paid by Medicare for doing hours and hours of a reconstructive procedure versus what I can derive from an hour of a cosmetic surgery. Um, the discrepancy is just unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and they, and they overpay for small stuff. They'll pay me well for a skin cancer. They'll pay me terribly for a five, six, seven hour microsurgical procedure, you know, to transfer tissue from one place to another. So yeah, it's, it's very undervalued. Most surgeons cannot practice independently um, solely on reconstruction. Most plastic surgeons are going to do some cosmetics. When someone is doing sole reconstruction, they're almost always employed by a major corporation or major hospital medical center that pays them a salary, uh, probably accepts uh, the loss in order to be able to provide for that service. Um, but, you know, the, the pay uh, for the procedures by insurance companies is really bad. And what, this is an odd question. I was just thinking about that. You're, you're just making me think about the body and stuff. So what, what is your kind of domain, I guess, bones and uh, skin? Like what are your like three favorite organs that you, that are most used or most manipulated aspects of the body? I'm a soft tissue guy. I, okay. I've, I've always worked primarily in, in soft tissue. That's skin and fat and muscle. Um, I've done my share of bone work. Uh, I've done bone grafts. I've done, you know, I've taken care of, I, I do hand surgery because that's part of the training of a plastic surgeon. So I've treated, you know, complicated uh, hand fractures and finger fractures and things like that. Um, I've always felt more in my comfort zone in soft tissue. Uh, I One of the people I trained with was perhaps one of the top two craniofacial surgeons in the world. Uh, he was trained by the father of... Um, uh, craniofacial surgery, uh, uh, and he just passed away very recently. His name was uh, S. Anthony Wolf. We used to call him Tony, Tony Wolf. Hmm. Uh, and Tony Wolf uh, would do the most incredible reconstructions on the, the faces of children that involve cutting the bones, uh, moving the eye socket around, moving the skull around, pulling the jaw out, pushing the, the, the lower jaw in. Uh, wow. I mean, and when you watch these things being done and you imagine this is what I'm training to do, uh, it's almost mind-blowing. Uh, most people that do that go beyond my training. I trained in, in plastic surgery for two, two full years. I could have gone on and done a fellowship in that kind of work. Um, it wasn't my interest. I, I didn't, because that you have to do in a major medical center. You can't do that in a place that I, like I practice, which is a community hospital in the middle of Florida. Um, but there are people that do bone work that is just beyond belief. And he was one of those that just was second nature to him to do bone grafts and, and that sort of thing. For me, soft tissue is the way to go. When, when you're thinking about, um, working on the skulls of children, uh, to what degree is he taking into account how that skull is going to grow? Do, if he tells it what to do at a certain stage, it'll keep on like, like a bowling ball. It'll just go in the direction or... Absolutely. You have to, in children, you have to take growth into account. And if you don't, you know, you're, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. Uh, sometimes what he's doing is actually freeing up 
a skull so that the, the, the brain can grow and the, and the child can grow. Uh, sometimes it's adjusting things so that the uh, an eye socket that's too shallow where the, the child can't close their eyes and they risk blindness because their eyes dry mm-hmm. out. You have to deepen that eye socket. Um, so, you know, your factor, and, and when you're doing anything on the jaws, for example, doing um, uh, work on a cleft palate, you don't want to do these too early in life because you will affect the growth of the palate. Um, ear surgery. Uh, the, uh, the ear is nearly 80 to 90% grown to its adult size by the time you're six or seven years old. And so when you get a child that has a, a, one of these really bad, you know, bat wing ears, you want to catch them before it becomes something that they're teased about and become self-conscious of. But you don't want to do it too early where you'll affect growth of the ear. So the ideal timing most of the time is right around when they're about to start first grade or, you know, late kindergarten, first grade. So you have to take into account their growth and development. Absolutely. Wow. Have you worked much with ears? Uh, I've done my share. Yeah, I've done, uh, you know, I, uh, you see a lot of ear cancers. So you're cutting off a big part of an ear and you have to rebuild that. You were saying a nose is interesting. Ears are fascinating because they're extremely complex. And like a nose, you know, there's there's not a lot there to work with. You have some skin and some cartilage yeah, uh, and not a whole lot more. And then you have all these very complex curves and things that you have to try to, to recreate uh, if you want to produce something. The nice thing is you don't, people don't look at your ears at the same time, unless you're looking at somebody dead on <laughs> and comparing the two ears. Yeah. Uh, as long as each ear looks normal, you can have one ear that's, that's maybe even half the size of the other, and it won't be terribly noticeable to people unless they actually consciously are looking for a difference. Wow. Wow. Just so many things I haven't really thought of, but designing an ear from scratch. Do you, you transplant cartilage or do you use like some sort of other substance for? Re- I'm a dinosaur. It? I trained in, in 1987 through 89. And back okay. then, the way we would rebuild a, a, an ear, there were, you know, procedures that were designed by some brilliant reconstructive surgeons um, that uh, involved taking cartilage from the ribs uh, and you could actually take a piece of cartilage from part of the rib, and then you would sit there on the back table, and you'd carve the contours of an ear. And then, of course, you would implant that and have to cover it with skin. Um, and that would require a, usually a multi-stage process. Um, today, I, I can't speak to the current status of this, because I really haven't kept up with things that, that I don't really deal with on a day-to-day basis. But I know that they're working on growing organs now. Yeah. So they're doing tissue culture and, and, and they'll take, you know, tissue from a person, they'll grow an ear on a petri dish uh, and you get it to a point where you can actually transplant it. And if it's done with the individual's own cells, you're not going to have the issue of rejection to have to, to contend with. Um, so there's a lot of advances. I don't know if that's reached a point where it's standard of care at this point in time. Yeah. Yeah. The, there are some incredibly good ear reconstructions that were being done even, you know, 30 plus years ago. Yeah. So we began by uh, taking a shot across the bow of your professional organization. When did you, when did the industry start changing on you on that level? And when did you start speaking up and why? I started speaking up 
uh, this is a very gradual evolution, mind you, but I started speaking up first around 2019. Uh, and that was based on something that I read. Um, just to, to give you a quick, or your listeners a quick, or viewers, I should say, quick background. Uh, the ACS, the American College of Surgeons, is the oldest, largest organization in the world that represents surgeons of all specialties. Um, and the focus of the ACS has always been excellence. It's always been to provide the means to support surgeons to be the best they can be and to provide the best care for patients. And it's kind of an honorary thing to be a fellow of the ACS. You know, it's, there's a selection process that you go through. And I was selected back in 1991 after I completed my plastic surgery training. was very proud to put that FACS after my MD and went on with my practice through the years. I had very little active engagement in the ACS beyond, you know, getting their, their journal and the bulletin and things like that. And then in, in 2018, I came across a, uh, a bulletin uh, issue that had the text of a speech given uh, at the Clinical Congress, which they hold annually. It's their big annual meeting. This was done by a pediatrician who is the uh, director of um, diversity and community partnership at Harvard. Uh, and her speech was titled A Path Towards um, Diversity, Inclusion, and Excellence. That was the title of her talk. And I thought, that's an interesting topic. And I read the text, and I read it through twice. Um, and it was all about diversity. There was nothing in it about excellence. Excellence wasn't even, the word even, didn't even appear uh, in the text of the uh, of that article. Uh, as a consequence, I sat down and I read a long commentary. It was probably a, a full single-space page. Um, and that was actually printed in uh, the Bulletin of the American College of Surgeons, along with the other three commentaries that were submitted. Um, and each of them was maybe a sentence or two. Um, nothing happened. I mean, it was printed. I never got uh, a single bit of feedback on that from any. What was the content owner. of this uh, response? The, it was basically my concern that we were uh, taking excellence and subordinating it to diversity. And I felt that was a mistake. I thought that we need to maintain the emphasis on excellence and not to be looking at diversity as, as the prime motivator for, for how we practice and what we do. Um, and so uh, nothing happened, and that stimulated me to start learning more about uh, things like social justice and um, the whole industry of diversity, equity, inclusion that was just now beginning to come into its own. Um, and this was uh, through uh, 2019, uh, and um, what happened was um, in 2020, of course, we had um, the the George Floyd killing and, and the riots and, and the country went crazy, went literally crazy. Uh, and there was a stampede when the, every institution in America could not jump on the bandwagon fast enough to declare themselves, you know, aligned with Black Lives Matter and uh, uh, an agreement with the idea that the American that America was a systemically racist country, uh, and so forth. And the ACS did the same. So what they did is they assembled a task force on racism. This was done within weeks. I mean, George Floyd was killed in May. In June, this task force was assembled to study. And this this is where it got interesting. When you read the bulletin, it says 
to deal with the uh, issue or the problem of systemic or structural racism in the ACS. It was not whether or not there was racism in the ACS. That was that was a given. It, the ACS was structurally racist, and we had to form this task force and provide these recommendations to deal with that racism. And so the recommendations came out, uh, and there was just a, a laundry list of anything you can think of that had to do with the DEI, anti-racism, white supremacy, white privilege, um, you name it. The basic thing that, that most struck me and I most objected to was the allegation that, number one, the ACS was systemically racist. Number two, that the surgeons in the ACS were racist and couldn't help it. We were, and of course, we're talking mostly about white surgeons. Um, and three, and this was really where, where they went off the rails, was that uh, surgery itself was discriminatory, that the practice of surgery by its very nature was discriminatory. So what did they have to base this on? What was the, there was no evidence. They didn't provide a study the basis basically was disparities. And that's what it always comes down to is yeah. if you have disparities, that is, you don't have proportional representation of minorities in a certain situation, then that situation is a racist situation. Um, you want, kind of wonder how the NBA and the NFL escape that, but they somehow do. Um, but because there weren't 14% black surgeons in the ACS, um, then the ACS was racist. And the other thing was that, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty much accepted that if you do studies, you'll learn that minorities in certain groups, blacks and, and so forth, uh, when you look at the outcomes from surgery, that they don't do as well from a lot of different surgical procedures and, and so forth. Um, and so, of course, that's because of racism. That's because they don't get the care from their surgeons that they would. And I've even heard the leadership of the ACS specifically state that um, – it might be that it's better for a black patient to have a black surgeon because they'll get better care. Um, so, I mean, these, these things were, to me, were so completely wrong. I mean, that was so defamatory and so toxic. I couldn't not respond. So I sent a letter to the president of the ACS at that time, uh, wrote a long letter. Um, I happen to love writing. That's, that's what I love to do and kind of what I plan to do more and more in my retirement. Um, but I wrote a long letter in which I in, kind of listed my concern. I gave my background. I'm half Brazilian. I was born and raised in two cultures. Um, I have my, my parents uh, uh, were never, ever um, um, racially discriminatory. Uh, my mother, a Brazilian, came to Miami, Florida, uh, during segregation, when there were separate facilities, public restrooms and water fountains for blacks and whites. And she always made it a point to use the black facilities. She always went to the black restrooms and used the black water fountains. She refused to, to bow to this segregation. Um, so anyway, so I was really incensed about this. And I, and I told them, I said, I, you know, to call our, our organization, which is so respected and, and done such an incredible job of helping surgery to evolve to be as good as it can be, to call it racist and to call us racist and to call surgery racist, I can't accept that. And if we don't change this direction that the ACS is clearly going in, uh, I'm going to drop my fellowship. I, I can't think, I couldn't think of any other threat that I could offer that had any consequence. So yeah. I said, I'm going to drop my fellowship. Um, I got no answer from that. that. That letter never got an acknowledgement or a response. And so my next step was to say, well, that didn't work out too well. Maybe what I need to do is go to the actual membership of the ACS 
and and try to go that route. So what I did is uh, I went to what's called the communities. The communities is a discussion forum on the ACS website, and doctors can post questions in clinical uh, situations. They can initiate discussions um, and and network back and forth. And so I went on the general surgery forum, which is the largest forum uh, of the of the many in the ACS, and I posted a uh, a I put a post up. Um, and it basically said the same thing I said in my letter. I said, I cannot countenance this claim that, you know, this is a racist institution, that I'm a racist, that surgeon, and so forth. And if this doesn't stop, if this direction does not change, I will drop my fellowship. Um, and that particular comment generated a comment thread yeah. that ran for four months. Uh, almost broke the system. They had to actually go to a second thread because the, there was so much engagement there that it was slowing the system down um and more engagement than any other in the history of the acs uh two-thirds of the people that commented on that that thread uh agreed with me they, they agreed that there was concern here the reason for concern i was asking for several simple things i asked for an acknowledgement that they were actually doing what they clearly were doing i said are you embracing you know uh dei uh critical race theory, which DEI, basically a euphemism for critical race theory. Are you embracing that? Um, what is the justification for calling the ACS and surgeons racist? Give us your evidence. Show us where the problems are so we can deal with them. Um, and never got anything from the leadership that remotely addressed those questions. Well, that thread ran its course. It, it, you know, Like a lot of threads do, eventually it dies down. People, you know, There's only so much you can comment. Um, and, uh, so I kind of backed away from it and, uh, was thinking about what my next step would be. And I really hadn't thought about it in any kind of depth. And what happened was the, the leadership approached me. Oh, one thing I should mention that's really interesting. This, this, I, this, I got a kick out of this cause it was so clearly gaslighting. Um, the, the ACS hosted a leadership retreat for all the leaders of surgical societies in June of 2021. Um, and they invited a keynote speaker. The keynote speaker was Ibram X. Kendi. Kendi wrote the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Uh, and he's the one that proposes, you know, discrimination is the answer to, reverse discrimination is the answer to discrimination. Um, and he propo he's proposed a department of anti-racism in the U.S. government that's going to oversee all other departments to vet them for their their compliance with with his anti-racism um i mean it's just unbelievable this guy this guy believes in what he what he's trying to do so you know here they invite the the most vocal visible uh advocate of anti-racism and, and dei and critical race theory to their leadership uh retreat as uh their keynote speaker and i and others said well why don't you invite some other people there are so many black intellectuals that you can invite that will provide an alternate view to Kendi. You know, Shelby Steele, Glenn Lowry, uh, Ian Rowe, uh, Thomas Sowell. I could go on and on. I mean, I know all these names now because I've been dealing with them and reading about them for several years. Yeah. And and no, the answer was no. So anyway, the thread runs this course. I don't know what to do. And I get approached by the leadership of the ACS. Now, the ACS has 84,000 surgeons. You know, I'm one little guy in Lake County, Florida. Okay, yeah. what what influence do I have? But I guess I made enough noise that it caught the attention of the leadership. And so they approached me and said, we'd like to do a Zoom call with you and discuss you, these concerns that you've expressed. I said, great, let's do it. 
So we did. We had a Zoom call in March of 2022. And um, at the Zoom call were five people, um, three from the ACS, myself and a colleague of mine. Uh, there was a, one of the Board of Regents. There was a, the Secretary, the General Secretary of the ACS and their newly installed Director of Diversity, which is a whole new department that they had installed based on the task force recommendations. And the, the colleague that I invited was a local surgeon that I worked with closely, he was a good friend. And, and I, I liked it because she checked all the right boxes. She was female, she was black. And, and she was totally against all these things that were being done and had supported me throughout this comment thread. We had a lovely discussion. I mean, everyone spoke, it was very civil, professional. Everyone expressed their opinion about the, the issue. Nothing was agreed upon, no, no consensus was reached, but it was very encouraging. I, I sent a, a, a long email of thank you to all the people, especially the ACS people that participated, that I hope this will be the beginning of an ongoing dialogue so we can discuss this controversial issue within the ACS, bring in the membership to talk about this. And within a couple of weeks of that Zoom meeting, uh, this was in, now in April of 2022, uh, I discovered that I could no longer access the communities on the website. I would try to get into them and I couldn't, I was blocked. I thought at first there was a glitch in the system and I tried for a couple of weeks unsuccessfully, finally went to the Secretary General, uh, the General Secretary of the ACS, uh, a surgeon named Tyler Hughes, who is now the, the elected vice president, and said, Tyler, I can't get on the communities, what's going on? And this is when they first told me, this is this was the first inkling I had. Uh, oh, you've been permanently blocked. You're permanently banned from access to the communities. Um, and um, why? in a moment, let that sink in. And I said, well, why? Hmm. said, it's because you have been continuously using disrespectful language in your comments, and you continually post non-clinical material on the clinical uh, discussion forums. And what had happened uh, is that he had changed the rules between the Zoom call and my telephone call and my ban, they changed the rules in the communities to prohibit any non-clinical discussion in the clinical forums, which is where I had placed my, my comment within the general surgery forum. Well, what's really interesting and kind of hypocritical about that is that one of the, the big reasons for pushing all these, these new initiatives in the ACS is the disparities in clinical outcomes. I mean, they're, they're telling us that blacks don't do as well from surgery because of racism in surgery. And so how in the world do they say this is not a clinical discussion? Well, uh, that was the reason he gave. I said, give me an example. I said, show me an example of something I said that was disrespectful or show me an example of one of my comments that was inappropriate. And they never have. From that day on, they, they've never shown me a single thing. Um, the other interesting fact is that not only did they block me from access to the community, so I can't communicate with the surgeons in the ACS. I'm blocked from access to the member's directory. I can't even look up a surgeon's email address or anything on the ACS website. So it really isolated me. And then they blocked me from my private mail. Uh, I have a, a private mailbox. Uh, and I was getting a lot of support in that mailbox from surgeons that said, I agree with you, you know, keep going. Uh, I can't speak up publicly because it would risk my career. Um, the idea that a surgeon would be scared to speak up blows my mind because surgeons are not shrinking violence. Um, you know, we're pretty confident, 
forceful individuals that that don't like to get pushed around. Um, wow. So the ban went into effect. I appealed to the Board of Regents. That was denied. They told me I received due process uh, huh. in this decision. So um, that was a flat-out lie, a total lie, because uh, I went to the, um, the uh, head of the Central Judiciary Committee. This is a department in the American College of Surgeons whose sole job is to deal with disciplinary matters, okay? If you're a member of the ACS and you're misbehaving in some manner, you will be called on the carpet before the Judiciary Committee, and they're going to investigate the allegations or the accusations against you. And they will decide if they are, you know, legitimate. And if they are, they will propose a punishment of some sort. Um, and then they will send that to the Board of Regents, who then informs you that you are being punished. Well, there's a protocol for this, and this is very clearly spelled out in the bylaws of the ACS. You're supposed to be informed that you are being considered for some disciplinary action. I was never informed. Um, you are supposed to be given the opportunity to provide a defense. Uh, in other words, you're allowed to have a hearing before the the committee or the board to hear what the accusations are. I mean, to be told that you've been accused of something and not be told exactly what it was uh, doesn't sound like due process to me. And so they hadn't done that. And then the third thing is before any punishment is, is put into place, you are to be informed that this is going to happen. Um, none of that occurred. So I requested a hearing. I said, I want a hearing. I'm, I'm, I'm a member in good standing. I still am, by the way. I have not been kicked out of the ACS. And I went to the head of the Judiciary Committee and said, I want a formal hearing. And this is where things take a turn for the surreal. This is where they really get crazy. So he tells me that my ban was never discussed by that committee. The committee that's in charge of disciplining members of the ACS never heard about my ban, never was involved in any way, shape, or form in that ban. And because of that, my lifetime ban, and I repeat, this is a lifetime ban, is not a disciplinary matter. And therefore, I don't get a hearing. I don't deserve oh, or rate a hearing. Oh. Yeah. Wait, so, a punishment isn't disciplinary. What is it? Yeah. Then? Is it not a punishment? Well, you know, you're, 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 you're asking the obvious question, and <laughs> I've been asking that question for the better part of a year and a half, and I have yet to get an answer to it. Huh. So uh, this is kind of why we're talking today, Ben. The, the, this whole thing came about um, through no conscious intent of mine. I didn't go out to become this, this agitating activist against the ACS. I still want the organization to thrive and to do well and support surgeons and and actually fulfill its mission. The mission of the ACS is to heal to heal all with skill and fidelity. That's the mission statement of the ACS, pretty much all-encompassing. Um, and I'm not trying to bring anything down. Um, I, I have to confess, I'd be happy to see a complete turnover in the leadership of the ACS at this point in time. But I went public. Um, and um, during the course of all this, I joined a couple of organizations, um, fantastic organizations. I can't recommend supporting them um, enough. Uh, one, the first one was FAIR, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. And I'm a founding fellow of FAIR in medicine, which is kind of a medical offshoot of FAIR, yeah. which is fighting against, you know, is fighting against illiberal uh, things like critical race theory and DEI and things of that sort. And the second one, I, I don't recall how I came across them, but 
um, Do No Harm, relatively new organization, uh, Do No Harm Medicine.org. Um, they only opened, they, their, their organization was launched um, in March of 2022, I believe it was, or April, thereabouts. They're, they're not even hardly two years old. And tremendously effective in pushing back against uh, things like um, uh, colleges requiring that student, that applicants submit DEI statements and offering scholarships that are not open to whites, only open to blacks. Um, and they've been pushing and pushing and pushing for for eliminating race conscious um, uh, selections, you know, trying to encourage meritocracy, a, a return to things that that should be obvious that you want the best possible people in medicine. You want the best candidates for medical schools. You want the best medical school graduates for the best programs and, and training and so forth. And so these two organizations have been so incredibly helpful. Uh, and by virtue of my affiliation with them, um, I've been able to get a lot more exposure than I ever imagined in my in my wildest dreams. I've actually had an article published in the Wall Street Journal back in September of 2022. In 2023, I had articles posted twice in the National Review, uh, one article in um, uh, City Journal, and just uh, uh, a week or so ago, I had an article published that was over the um, the holiday. I had an article in the Washington Examiner, which all pretty much are regarding this this situation of mine. Um, I don't know if I'm talking too long. If you have questions, no, well, please stop. So what is the uh, downstream effects of these policies? Uh, I mean, they are disabusing you of just respectful, uh, just treating you with basic respect um, because you're violating their ethical code or something, or they're trying to keep this stuff uh, from being criticized, which is okay. That's, that's one conversation, one topic, but what happens? What's the downstream effects of these DEI policies and hiring and training, and then in application of the medical field? And are we seeing them, those effects yet? That's a $64,000 question, and that's super important because while my band is an indicator of the radical transformation of the ACS, I mean, the idea of banning civil discussion and debate and, and so forth in a professional organization, that, that should never happen. But the other problem is this. When you start putting diversity at the head of the line, um, if your goal is to have proportionate representation of surgeons, which is one of the 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 thing that has been the biggest push is the fact that we don't have enough black surgeons in the ACS. Okay, so we have a 14% you know population of blacks in the American uh, population, and there's only 2% blacks in the ACS. So what do we do about that? Well, the problem is this: if you start to to raise diversity up to um, the primary um, goal of say the organization then you've got to find a way to raise those numbers. If those numbers aren't there, if they're not yeah. enough qualified applicants for medical school and surgical residencies, then the only thing that you can do is to lower your standards to the point where you do have more people qualifying because they're not qualifying at this level, so they got to bring yeah. it down. And this has not just happened in the ACS. This has happened, we heard about this all in the universities because you know they have uh, quotas. For, for blacks, they have quotas for Asians. I mean, it's it's crazy. I mean, it's just, you got this crazy system that that categorizes people into identity groups and based on the group that you're in, 
you're either favored or not favored. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the least favored group is me, the the old white male, basically. Um, but you're not going to be able to have merit and excellence as primary if you put diversity first. You, you, they're incompatible. You just can't do that. We've already eliminated things in, in, in medical education that are making it very difficult to establish who are the best students and who are the best performers. They don't have grading on the medical college aptitude test. So today you can get into very, very elite competitive medical school based on an essay, based on your lived experience. You yeah. can have a, a, a medical college aptitude grade that is two standard levels below uh, the average uh, applicant and you'll get in based on meeting the right boxes, you know, if you're black or Hispanic or, or some such thing. Do, is, so, it, have the, have the uh, insurance companies done the math on this with regard to malpractice insurance and, and how much they're going to have to be covered? Or are they going to lower the standards or raise the standards of what it means to have a malpractice suit? That's probably going to happen, but I'll tell you right now, they're just as captured as everybody else is. I mean, the insurance, uh, these, these corporations and all, everybody yeah. out there, I guarantee you, every insurance company has got a department of DEI in that insurance company. That's yeah, but they still have to count the beans. I mean, you can't, the beans are the beans. Well, that's, it's starting to happen. I think, it's, yeah. I think the tide is turning. I mean, I think that the, the whole um, debacle of the three university presidents before Congress was kind of an eye-opener for many, many people about how far this has gone and how bad this can be. Um, yeah, I mean, it's going to happen. I mean, you're going to find... I I have contacts among young surgeons who are in training that tell me things that will curl your hair. That, you know, and I know... And this is not anything new. It's just that I never heard it firsthand like this. I know that many of my colleagues that have been out there for a long time, like I have, that, that trained before all these, these social justice and, and, and other you know, ideologies uh, came to be, um, we look around and we see the, the crop of young surgeons coming out and they're not qualified. I mean, it is common, it's not at all unusual to have a, a surgeon come out of a residency, fully trained, completed the residency, you know, qualifies to sit for board certification, and yet they're not ready to operate independently and they show up in a hospital and pretty soon you find that they have to be mentored for six months or a year or more by an experienced surgeon, yeah. uh, kind of holding their hand in a sense until they've demonstrated their capability to practice independently. That's crazy. So I mean, it's burdening can... an already burdened system, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you were already short surgeons as it is, and to have surgeons coming out of training program that aren't qualified to practice until they've had further, you know, post residency training, that's never happened before. I mean, it was a you know, yeah. most people are eliminated in their second or third year residency if they can't cut it as a surgeon. I mean, we're being monitored every year. We're being given more responsibility and seeing how we respond to it and. You know, you have senior surgeons that operate with you and see how you work. Um, by the time you're in your last year of training, they pretty much cut you loose. I mean, they know your capability. They expect you to ask for help if you need it. And they're letting you train younger surgeons, they're letting you, you know, supervise younger surgeons doing their first appendectomy or gallbladder surgery. 
And so that's the way it was when I was in training. Today, that's not the case. I've had surgeons tell me that, you know, they never did certain operations that are basic surgeries in, in, in the field, that they've never done a single one in the residency. Yeah. Uh, I had one young surgeon that was doing a, a case uh, dealing with a breast cancer. Um, and in the middle of the operation, he told me, you know, I'm really glad that we don't have to go after any lymph nodes in her armpit because I've never done that before. And I'm thinking, how the heck do you finish five or six years of general surgery training and never learn how to remove lymph nodes from someone's armpit? That's that's the basic operation in, in a lot of cancer surgeries. So, yeah, we're seeing a, a what I believe is a very real degradation in the quality of surgeons out there in surgery. Now, I have to be careful because, you know, people say, oh, it, it can't be that bad or people will be dying right and left. Well, that's absolutely true. For one thing, the human body is amazingly capable of... You know, <laughs> can it survive DEI? Yeah, it, it can survive <laughs> a lot, okay? But there are there are excellent surgeons. I, I'd be I would be remiss yeah. if I didn't say that there are programs that are doing their job. I have a daughter uh, and a son-in-law who are both physicians. Um, and, and my son-in-law is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And I see the work he does, and I am blown away. I mean, he is clearly a brilliant surgeon, very, very good at what he does, although he's very young and just out of his training and already assuming a lot of responsibility in a major medical center. So there are those people, but there are way too many that are coming through the system that came in as a diversity selection that were pushed through because it was un, just un, uh, you couldn't even consider dropping them because then they'd be screaming, you know, racism yeah. and discrimination and this and that. So you keep putting these people through and you keep holding their hands. There come the day when you got to turn them loose on society. And that's where it's going to get a little bit scary. Yeah. Um, I go so far because uh, I know it looks remarkable, but I'm 71 years old. Um, and that's all that plastic surgery, isn't it? Well, it does help. I got to admit, I, if I'd done the hair transplant, that would have been a lot better, but I, I just couldn't spring for those. Um, but luckily, my wife and I are in, in excellent health. And so we're not really in the medical system yet, but the day is going to come. The day will come when I'm going to need an operation or, or my heart or whatever. And um, I'm going so far to, to, to say to myself, I'm not going to go to anybody who's under 40. If I go see a surgeon who's younger than 40 years of age, I'm going to vet them like there's no tomorrow to make sure that they're properly trained and, and have a track record and this and that, because I don't trust the, the education that these younger doctors are getting these days. Is there Was there ever a similar push towards equity, meaning the uh, centralized intentional balancing of representation along sex lines? Because I'm sure... What's the distribution of male to female and the surgeon in that? Oh, it's still heavily weighted to surgeons. I mean, surgery is very demanding, and 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 women don't gravitate to um, the field of, of general surgery or, or whatnot. Plastic surgery is a little bit different. I mean, yeah. you know, there's probably, I would say, I can't give you an exact number. I'll probably say it's probably close to 50-50. I okay. will tell you that more than half the, that half the medical students in the country are, are female. Okay. So that 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 particular uh, ratio has flipped for sure. Um, something like eighty percent or more of OBGYNs are female. So and and pediatricians, many more female than male than pediatrics. Yeah. So yeah. there are, there are specialties that that women tend to gravitate toward. 
And uh, was there also, ever any like push towards equity or, or was there like, some, I'm, I'm sure there's been some social engineering to make it more amenable to females. It what wasn't was there, there when I was in training. It was, okay. it was never, it was, if it was, it was so under the, 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 uh, the radar that no one was aware. Uh, we were allowed to pick whatever we wanted to do. No one was pushed. No one was, no one said, well, you know, you need to look at surgery because there's not enough women in surgery. There's nothing like that. Um, our, our, my class was very, very, um, much weighted to, to white male. Um, we had 120 some students in my medical school class. We probably had about, uh, 20 women, I would say. Um, we had, a uh, a couple of Asians, um, uh, a Chinese, uh, um, let's see a couple others from, from, uh, Japanese, um, a few blacks, not a lot, not a large number of black students. Um, no one looked at that in any way as being other than just the way things are. My daughter's medical school class. I was a graduate of 1978 and she's a graduate of 2018. I could not believe the diversity in her class. First off, it was 50% female. Uh, the number of, of Hispanic, Asian, black students was dramatically greater than in my class. And I don't know if that was done because of, of selective admissions. I suspect there was probably some element of that. Um, when you mention the word equity, uh, you know, people don't really, I think, appreciate what equity really, really means. Uh, and it's not, it's not equality. Uh, and uh, it, you know, the word used to mean fairness. You know, it, it was to be equitable was to be fair. Today, the word, as, as I hear it all the time, and as I believe most people that use it understand it, is that equity means that we're all going to have the same outcome. That, you know, no matter what field we're in, that, you know, everybody, all, all patients should have the same outcome. And they should get a good outcome from surgery. Um, it should be the same across the board. Um, if that is not happening, there's some form of discrimination going on against the group that is not having the good outcome. Well, I mean, you could probably make a case that, um, you could probably research more on like why these outcomes are different. And I guess one question would be, do black people have different bodies than white people? Is the, and the understanding of bodies is based on white, white bodies and black bodies are different. And so they're not receiving, uh, there's just an ignorance gap. Well, you know, there's there's this idea that race is the construct. It's a social construct that doesn't really exist. Um, I would say it does exist, and I think we ignored it at our peril. Um, there are things that are that are by far and away, you know, seen in certain groups that are not seen hardly at all in others. Um, if you get a patient that has a Dupuytren's contracture. In their hand, which is a very uh, common uh, problem that is seen in hand surgery, um, you can bet that patient probably has a Northern European background, uh, because that's where people with with uh, that come from. If you get a patient that has thalassemia, which is a a blood disorder um, that can affect uh, bleeding and things like that, uh, anemia, um, that individual is going to be from somewhere in the Mediterranean, uh, Middle East Mediterranean area, because that's where thalassemia is most likely found. Uh, if you are going to, you're not going to be testing a, a, a person of white European background 
for possible sickle cell anemia. That's a total waste of time because that just is not seen in that population. So there are definitely physiological and, and, and genetic and so forth differences between the races. Um, but one of the things that I think that is done in the name of DEI is to take people and, and categorize them so that blacks are in one identity group and that identity group is homogenous. So all blacks need to, they're this way. They, they, this is, this is, if you're not this way, you're not black. If you're not, if you're a conservative politically, you can't be black. Um, you know, a, a black from Nick, from uh, Nigeria um, and a black born in the USA are identical. But if you look at them and you see what the, you know, how they do uh, from the standpoint of economics and, and success and so forth, I mean, completely disparate uh, um, outcomes in these individuals. So, you know, you can't take, in medicine, you can't take a, a group of people because they have some immutable characteristic that they share, like being black, and uh, say, okay, because this is, the, this is how we're going to handle that group. Okay, we're going to do it according to these algorithms or according to this, we're going to go down this this pie chart and so forth and and, uh, and and this is the way we're going to, to treat them. Uh, the thing about medicine that is really, really discouraging in terms of what's happened is that we've gone from the original intent of medicine, which is to treat the patient in front of you to the absolute best of your ability, to dealing with identity groups and trying to in inject, you know, social justice uh, concepts and, and you know, we're supposed to take histories nowadays that have nothing to do with the medical problem and everything to do with how we identify people in society. You know, the, you know, what's your, where are you on the intersectionality chart? You know, are you, are you in the very, very oppressed category? Or are you in the very, very privileged category? And depending upon which categories you fit into, that's going to affect your medical care that you receive. All in the interests of of diversity and equity and inclusion. And, and the interesting thing about the inclusion part is that if you don't subscribe to those things, you are excluded. I'm a perfect example. Yeah. Okay. And there's, there's no inclusion for me in the ACS because I have disputed the, the prevailing narrative that the ACS is racist uh, and that surgeons are racist. And because I don't believe that and I argue against it, uh, I'm on the outside looking in that. Well, I mean, uh, obviously their ideas would totally stand up to scrutiny, and so they they were just saving you time arguing about it. They've well, already... what's interesting, and what's interesting about your that comment is is just reminds me that I was suggesting back in when they were inviting Ibram Kennedy to be their keynote speaker that they bring in somebody else to provide a counterpoint to his positions and and what he says. Um, Kindy commands twenty to thirty thousand dollars per hour for an appearance. He will not debate. He will not share the stage with anybody who disagrees with him because if you dis with, disagree with him, you are a racist, and he will not debate a racist. Uh -huh. So there is no willingness to have any kind of a, a civil discussion of all you know different viewpoints to let, for example, an audience listen to the arguments and come to a conclusion as to which they think, you know, stands up best under uh, uh, scrutiny. He won't do that. Yeah. Um, and that's what's happened with me. No one will 
no one can say that what I've said is wrong about my assertion that the ACS is not racist, but they're not going to let me have that conversation. They're going to isolate me and, and, and silence me. Well, on, on, a, on a medical level, has it ever been the case that there's been a treatment that has been for everybody at all times? Like there's just the human body was treated as never. completely. Okay. So and has I, there, I, has it ever been never. tried and what was the result of that? I can tell you from, I can tell you from just a very recent example is the, the whole COVID um, policies in management. Okay. Uh, vaccination. Okay? We know for a fact that the COVID vaccines are not what they were purported to be. They're not nearly as effective. They don't last long. They don't prevent transmission. They don't prevent you from getting sick. Um, there's a lot of signal and noise out there uh, about potential problems. We know for sure that the COVID vaccines are connected to myocarditis in boys and young men. And healthy boys and young men should not receive COVID vaccines because the risk from COVID is close to zero and the risk from the vaccine is higher. And yet we have a policy, a top-down policy from the CDC that is an all one size fits all. And they recommend routine vaccination with COVID vaccines from six months and up. So there, I don't know if, if there may have been a COVID death somewhere in a young child that was otherwise healthy, but boy, that is a rare bird. I mean, statistically the risk of a child getting sick from COVID is probably less than the risk of them getting a flu and getting really sick from the flu and possibly yeah. dying from flu. Um, but, you know, we have this, this top-down one-size-fits-all policy about vaccination that completely ignores that there is a more than 1,000-fold risk between a child and a 70-year-old adult getting COVID, and yet we're treating them the exact same way. Yeah. Yeah. No, there is nothing. I don't care if it's cancer. I don't care if it's heart disease. There's nothing in medicine where a single treatment is going to be equally effective for all patients across the board. That's why you have to look at the patient in front of you and treat that individual as a unique individual. Well, why would the professional organizations ignore that or overlook that? Are they just stupid or malicious or is it inconvenient? Are they lazy? There is an agenda. That's all I can say. There, there is, there's an underlying agenda that supersedes the, the concept of individual Hippocratic medicine. There, there's some goal to which they are striving. Some, I don't know, some utopian goal where everyone's going to be the same and get the same and do the same. Um, there's, there's always this conversation about power that sometimes the whole thing is about control and power and you know, people that have this idea that we have the answers, the next step is, well, if we had the power, we could institute all these solutions uh, because we have the answers. And so the goal could be simply to acquire as much power and ability, for example, you know, to get people into the government that believe as you do so that, you know, when the time comes, you can force your, your ideology and your views on the rest of the population because you know what's best for them. We're seeing that. We're, we're seeing that as it is right now. I mean, there, there, there's a push for things that don't make a lot of sense uh, that, uh, you know, coming from the, the government, uh, you know, immigration, uh, uh, the climate issue. Um, um, oh, gosh, uh, the whole gender affirmation industry now uh, yeah. is pushing for, for doing things 
based on some type of a, of a belief or ideology that borders on the religious. Uh, and if you start trying to look at it logically and rationally, you're not going to get very far because there is no logic or, or rationalization to it. Uh, Anthony Fauci famously said, you know, if you criticize me, you're criticizing science because I represent science. Oh, And yet there is there's absolutely, you know, oodles and, and scads of, of, of evidence and growing mounting evidence that Fauci was so wrong on so many levels based on, on what he did as far as uh, his policies for managing COVID. So I, I, don't, the I don't have a good answer for you. You know, people do inexplicable things, but yeah. They say, follow the money. You know, where's the money going? You know, power is a, is a huge incentive. Um, sometimes it's just good intentions. You know, people may have the best intentions and yet they're wrong. I mean, the, uh, if you if you take the, the vaccine policies as a good intention, uh, they believe that vaccines are going to to, you know, save lives. And yet if you start looking at the actual data and the the, the numbers, you realize well, yeah, they may be okay for maybe this population, but they're completely worthless for that population. In fact, they may be risky. But, you know, they say, no, no, we, you know, vaccines are great. We need to keep the message simple. People can't handle complexity. So we're just going to put a, a single policy for everybody because that's the easiest way to do things. <laughs> I think a lot of that is what happened during COVID. Yeah. You know, when you were talking about uh, the protocol of getting uh, disciplined uh, by the ACS, ACS, yeah. Um, yes, ACS. This is why I have to ask about the acronyms multiple times because I forget them all. Um, but I was trying to think, like, what would be the worst possible thing that a surgeon could do to to be shunned by the uh, or like officially, uh, you know, marked by the ACS? You know, and I was thinking, well, probably like some sort of Frankensteinian, uh, ego, megalomaniacal uh, attempt to. So just way beyond any sort of ethical um, parameters, and yet not quite illegal. But then he said, yeah, so that was the image in my head. And then he said, Fauci <laughs> comes up, says, ah, look at me, I am the science now. Like, wait, like that is a gross misrepresentation and overstep of a human being that should be a call for discipline. You would think so. <laughs> I would like to think so. Yeah. Uh, I, I will be flat out. Uh, straight and say that I'm looking forward to the day that Fauci and others are indicted uh, for crimes against humanity. I believe that with all my heart. That uh, I think that uh, he was complicit along with others in the development of the virus that became COVID. I think there's plenty of evidence that, that came out of the lab in China. We're never going to get to the bottom of it because the Chinese will never allow that. Um, the fact that we even think the Chinese are going to be transparent is kind of laughable if it wasn't such a serious thing. Um, so, you know, there's, there's been some pretty egregious things done out there uh, without any accountability, without anybody being called on the carpet to answer for that. Um, there's a lot of good doctors, a lot of good doctors. Uh, I know some of them um, that were absolutely persecuted. I mean, uh, just relentless attacks against their licenses, suspension of the licenses, threats against their licenses. And their crime was that they were treating their patients with things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine in the hopes of keeping them out of the hospital. Um, a lot of this took place before there were even vaccines. So here we had no vaccines, 
And, you know, a lot of doctors are scrambling to deal with this new virus and trying to get repurposed drugs. And yet, you know, what they find themselves facing is is a medical establishment, you know, including the, the Board of Medicine in multiple states that came at them as though they were criminals, as though they were they were, you know, killing or harming people. Um, and they were doing the best they could. I mean, it's just I've never seen anything like it. Uh, then I'll tell you, this is, I've been a doctor for, like I said, for 45 years. Uh, I wouldn't have done anything else with my life. I can't even imagine what it would have been like to, to do anything else. Uh, I've got lots of things I would like to do. I look forward to my retirement. I will be very uh, grateful for what I've done, and I know I'm going to have some regrets about quitting. But I look at medicine today, and it is so broken. I mean, I, and I don't have all the answers. I mean, everything yeah. from... Insurance and, you know, Obamacare was supposed to cure the problem with the uninsured. It's actually, I think, made it worse. Um, I had to cancel an operation on a patient a couple of weeks ago, a reconstruction case, because uh, the hospital asked for her $6,000 deductible. I would have a hard time, you know, writing a check for $6,000 for a deductible, and I can't imagine most people be able to do that. And so her surgery was canceled. And and she supposedly has good insurance, but who has good insurance if you got to pay $6,000 before it kicks in? So, you know, there's all these things, that, and, you know, the, the whole COVID thing was so discouraging to me. I mean, I was, I, when I wasn't working, I was online, I was writing uh, comments and blogs, and my family almost had to have an intervention uh, <laughs> to, get me off, to get me off social media for a while, because I was so enraged by what was happening. Yeah. And then we have, you know, we have... Uh, Medicine is debating, you know, whether there's more than two sexes. I mean, come on. I mean, we're having this actual discussion whether there's two more than two sexes or not. And the idea that you can do anything to someone and you're going to turn them into the opposite sex, that I don't care how much hormones they give them, I don't know what surgery you do, that you're going to convert, you're going to convert them to a Frankensteinian version of a human being. And, and there's lots of, of studies that come out of places like Sweden and Denmark that suggest that the, the, the mental issues, you know, that, that are up there, um, that lead to these things, are not necessarily resolved by these transitions. You know, countries that are very, very accepting of trans people have suicide rates of twenty percent and above for people that have transitioned. It's 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 crazy. Medicine has gone completely off the rails. Um, I'm just trying to do my little bit. I'm, I'm pushing against the ACS because this is where the the uh, the issue came to rest in my particular case. I'm getting involved in some other issues gradually as well. Um, as a plastic surgeon, I know a lot about what's involved in trying to do some of these transitional surgeries. I do mastectomies. I do reconstruct breasts. I've been involved in, in, in perineal reconstruction with flaps. So I understand how we do these things. And I'm telling you, not that easy to build a penis or vagina. I mean, to think that you can do that and you're going to have a a, a perfectly working, uh, uh, you know, part of the body that you don't that you, you can go on with your life and ignore. That's not the reality. You're, you're going to have potentially all sorts of problems with that. So yeah, so there's there's a lot of things to be discouraged about in medicine, and I'm yeah. I'm hoping that uh, uh, I can do my little bit to help turn that around. Well, is there, is there any sort of uh, protocol for keeping your professional organization uh, accountable? for the decisions i mean no as far as i know there is not i mean i, I can only speak for the acs because that's where I'm, I'm most familiar uh these decisions that i was that i was uh pushing back against were made 
pretty much behind closed doors in the leadership of the ACF. They're never brought to the general membership for discussion or a vote. They were simply announced that this is what we're going to do. The, the task force announced that we're going to do these things, and boom, 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 they were done. And they're there, so they were basically accomplished. Um, they recently came out with a toolkit. The ACS just launched their DEI toolkit, which I wrote about and, and against uh, in a National Review article. Um, and, uh, oh my God, to read this toolkit, again, it's it's like, what the heck are we talking about? They're... They they use as references things like articles that say that black babies do better if the black obstetrician is black. I mean, if the obstetrician is black. If the mother's black, they need a black obstetrician because the survival rate for black babies is higher with black obstetricians. Well, is that true? No, it's absolutely not true. I mean, if that study has been taken apart repeatedly. Uh, and in fact, one uh, very respected uh uh, critic of, of studies who's a, a data nerd went through that study and said this study is catastrophically flawed. It is not remotely a study that should be used to make this conclusion. What happens is they take a, a conclusion um, like, you know, surgeons are racist and they start to design studies or interpret studies in a way that will support that conclusion. Instead of, you know, taking the data and seeing where it goes, they're directing the data in, in ways that will provide for the outcome that they're seeking. Uh, and this is in their DEI toolkit, which is being promoted to surgeons yeah, as a way yeah. to implement DEI in their practices. Yeah. Do, do you expect like a rash of Rachel Dolezal surgeons to like fill in, to save the black babies? Like you just show up in blackface. Do you think that would work? <laughs> I, I, hate, I don't know if I want to answer that question. Okay. No, that was, that was that bait. <laughs> Did I just bait you? <laughs> Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's like lysenkoism. Yeah, the whole idea that you have to have a segregated medical uh, field where, you know, black people are treated by black surgeons and Hispanics by Hispanic surgeons and Asians by Asian surgeons. That's insanity. I mean, that's taking us back to, to even before Jim Crow. I mean, basically, uh, we are returning to segregation. We already have segregated dormitories and colleges. We have segregated uh, commencement ceremonies. We are now, I know this is a medical school because I've read this uh, uh, in, in various places that medical schools are now separating uh, medical students into different identity groups to, to discuss issues separately. The black groups are discussed there, the black oppression and victimization. The, the white students are there to discuss their white privilege and how they can deal with their inherent whiteness and so forth. And this is all happening right in front of us today. Uh, and it's it's like this cancer that's taken over the country. And we've been kind of blind to it until it became, you know, something we could no longer ignore. And now we're fighting against this overwhelming avalanche of, of ideology and trying to push that back. And, and it would have been so much easier if we'd done this, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. But now we're under the gun to try to take back yeah. some of these institutions. Well, you said yourself that you didn't see it decades ago. No, I was I was oblivious. I mean, yeah. the the problem with doctors, and I and I'm you know I'm as guilty as anybody else is. It's a very demanding profession. I don't care what specialty you're in; it demands a lot of your time. Not only do you have patient care time, you've got all the continuing education. You got running a, a small business, if you will. 
Um, there's, you know, you're, you have a family. Most doctors have a family. Obviously, you want a little downtime for yourself. And to find discretionary time to be an activist, to stay on top of all these things, you know, they, they piled stuff on over the years. Uh, and we've kind of been that frog sitting in the pan. Yeah. And they've been turning up the heat slowly. And don't finally, uh, I think finally some frogs are starting to jump out of the pan. A lot of frogs sit in there and just boil to death. And that's, you know, you get the, the highest burnout rates we've ever seen among physicians today. Really? Uh, a lot of physicians are not waiting till their anticipated retirement. They're leaving sooner. Um, I don't, I, I never anticipated retiring. I thought I'd retire when I was too old to practice anymore because I love what I do. And I still think I'm somewhat in my prime. Uh, but I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm tired. I love surgery more than ever, and I'm going to miss it like crazy. I'm tired of what I have to do to get to the operating room. All the bureaucratic red tape that I have to abide by and deal with, um, uh, regulations, um, insurance. I mean, I'm battling insurance constantly because they make the decision. They say, well, you know, don't let us affect your treatment of the patient. You just do what's best for the patient. Well, that's all well and good to say, except that the patient's going to incur a bill from the hospital that they're not going to be able to afford to, to pay. And the hospital's going to put a lien on their home, for example. Um, so, I'm tired of that. I'm tired of all this stuff. And I can understand the whole issue of burnout. I mean, I don't feel burned yeah. out, but I'm, I'm tired and frustrated of fighting a system that is becoming more and more antagonistic to the practice of traditional medicine. Yeah, this is some sort of late stage uh, empire stuff, just like education's in the same boat, but, you know, just primary education teachers are just getting burned out quicker and quicker and quicker. And, uh, you know, that... Yep. So. A couple of years ago, we crossed the line. For the first time, there were more doctors employed by corporations and big medical centers than were in independent practice. I'm still an independent practitioner. My partner and I have our own practice. We're not part of any group. Um, but that line was crossed to where most doctors are now employees. And that brings up a whole different dynamic. And the paradigm there is produce, produce, produce. I mean, you're under the gun to see enough patients to justify whatever salary they're paying you. You've got to meet all these metrics. You know, they have these, you've heard of press gaining scores. Are you familiar with those? No. Uh, a press gaining score is a way of assessing patient satisfaction. So they, they go to patients and say, how was your care? Was, was Dr. Smith nice to you? Uh, was the food in the hospital good? Uh, was the nurse a kind nurse? You know, and so forth. And so you have these press gaining scores. And, and they've, they've shown that they have nothing to do with level of patient care. But you know, doctors that are employed by, by organizations are under the gun to get these great press gaining scores. So if you're a doctor that says to the patient, well, you got to quit smoking and lose weight and do some exercise, well, that patient's not going to like you very much because they want a pill. They want an yeah. operation or a pill or something that's going to fix the problem. Um, and so the the whole idea is, is turned upside down about, you know, what a physician can and can't do. You can't tell someone to lose weight because now you're, you're fat shaming them. You know, your, your body shaming them. So to tell them that, you know, your body mass index is 40, that's morbid obesity, and your risk of diabetes and hypertension and arthritis and this and that are higher, you need to lose weight. Now, you can't do that because, you know, we have to make sure that we're encouraging their body positivity. Then it's nuts. Medicine has gone nuts. Oh, I, I, I say it, and, and I say that in, in complete seriousness, and literally it's gone crazy. Well, at least we can all move to Canada. They're doing really good up there, right? They're doing great up there. I hear Costa Rica is really nice, though. The weather is better. 
and the government's <laughs> the government's friendlier. The and Costa Rican. They have good they have good surfing and, and diving from what I hear. Okay. Well I wouldn't um, go in there. Is that where you guys are gonna head? I mean you're in Florida. Where do you go to retire? New York hey, City? You no, know, I, I basically stay here. We're gonna keep our house and our kids want us to join them in, in the Carolinas, but we're not yeah. ready to leave Florida yet. Yeah. One of the few one of the few staying states in the union at the present time. Yeah. Did you grow up there or you just ended up there for college? I'm I was all over the place. I was born in Colombia, South America. I grew up half half in Brazil, half in the US. Miami oh, wow. is my hometown. So wow. when I think of my hometown, it's Miami. Wow. And so you are now it sounds like you're doing more and more articles. Do you have a presence online or is it just every now and then a random essay? Uh, it's largely that I, I growing, they, you know, nowadays you really have to have a presence online if you want to get anything done. So I do have a Substack. Um, it's Richard T. Bostard, MD, substack.com that, that I have. I had a blog site called beyond plastic MD, which I'm slowly phasing out and moving to my Substack. Substack, uh, if you're familiar with it is, is really geared to writers, which yeah. is where I kind of see myself going. Uh, I've got a book I've, I've written. I've written a book on on plastic surgery that I'm working on on trying to figure out how best to get it out. It's very hard to be published if you're unknown, and so I may go the self publishing route. Or, or is there are people that are putting books on Substack? Is it a technical uh, manual or nope, nope? It's it's kind of a it's kind of a summary of what's happened uh, over the course of of you know, how the first book is actually a two part book. There, there's one part that is uh, what is a plastic surgeon? How are we trained? I mean, people, like you said in the beginning, they think we're nip-tuck specialists. But if they look at what I did in training, they're going to be amazed because I was blown away by how broad the field is and how, how much, you know, we work from the head to the toe. I mean, literally, toe reconstruction, head reconstruction. Um, you know, that's all part of the, the of the specialty. Um, the uh, Yeah, so the book and the substack. And uh, I'm getting a uh, a low battery. I just realized I got a low battery thing here. So I probably need to plug in here before this thing shuts off. Can you give me one second to plug in? Yeah, sure. And then plug your work. One, one second. We're in the plug part of the show. All right. Th these are the little things that, you know, when you have some experience with these sorts of uh, venues that you learn all the important things, like make sure you check your battery before you start. Yeah. I thought it was pretty good when I started. Yeah. Um. Uh, what were you asking? Uh, just about your work. Yeah, you're explaining your book. It's a two-parter. Okay. One is about the... Yeah, it's called um, uh, The Make... What is it? <laughs> the title is gone. I haven't settled on my title totally. Um, uh, the Making of a Plastic Surgeon. Uh, two years in the crucible, learning the art and science, because it really was a crucible. It was the hardest thing I've ever done was my two years of training. Uh, the guy that trained me was an absolute... Uh, brilliant genius of a man. But, oh my God, was he hard to to get along oh. with and intimidate him? Oh, really? Um, so the Substack and the book are the two things I'm working on right now and trying to get a. You know, I, I post on Facebook. I I haven't done much with others. I post on Twitter um, now X. I hate that you have to say that all the time. Everyone, no one can call it X. They always say you know X that used to be Twitter. I don't know why they had to change the stupid name, but uh, I'm on X a little bit, not a lot. It, it tends to be. It's not my idea of a great venue, a yeah. you know, place to be putting stuff. Um, that's pretty much it. And then, you know, I've gotten a fair amount of exposure on, on things like your podcast. I, I don't know how wide a net you cast, but uh, 
it's going to be definitely wider than my own net that I'm casting <laughs> right now, to be honest. Yeah. I'm very fortunate to have been published in some, some decent uh, outlets that have a pretty good readership. I think that the Washington Examiner uh, goes out to 100,000 people. And of course, yep. there's that ripple effect. Those hundred thousand are going to pass this on. Hey, you got to read this. You know, that yeah. gets out there. So uh, I made it onto Fox a couple of times. Uh, Wall Street Journal brought me to the attention of Tucker Carlson, so he had me on his show uh, way too briefly. Uh, yeah. And then uh, my National Review uh, article uh, got me again the attention of Fox, um, and uh, uh, that ended up being uh, kind of a uh, people said they saw it. I never, I can't ever find it. I've never seen my interview on, uh, I think it was the Jesse Waters show, but people said they've seen it. So yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get the word out. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make as much noise as I can. I want to be that little annoying buzzing fly around the head of the elephant, which is the ACS. Yeah. And uh, if I have to state a goal, my goal is to, to stimulate enough um, interest and hopefully enough outrage between what was done to me and what the ACS is doing to surgery, that uh, my fellow surgeons will sit up and take notice. And maybe there'll be enough pushback that the ACS will rethink the direction they're going in. And my pie in the sky goal would be to initiate a, I wouldn't call it a rebellion, but I would say a turnover of the leadership to get rid of these people that have install these initiatives get them out of there and get those initiatives out of the acs as well i can't think yeah. of a thing you can say worse than to say that a surgeon's racist because you know if you go to the er you, know, you walk in cold you don't know a person they don't know you this is probably the worst thing that's ever happened to them in their life they're in pain they're injured and, and they're scared and you walk in and and if it's a black patient you're this white guy um, do you really want that surgeon? I mean, that patient thinking, oh my God, this is a white guy. I don't have any choice. I've got to deal. You know, he, is he going to give me the best care? Um, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to do the best I can for this guy, but what if things don't go well? If he doesn't have a good result, is it going to be, you know, come back on me because I was racist? What if he doesn't follow my instructions because he doesn't trust me? Yeah. You know, if I tell him, yeah, the, it, it just, the, 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 the effect of that is so toxic, so poisonous to, to medicine and surgery. That for for surgeons, for leaders in the in the surgical field to be saying things like this, I mean, you got to push back against it. You can't yeah. just sit back and let them do this. It breaks the chain of trust, and trust is really important in your field. Oh, it's a, it's incredibly important. I mean, it's it's there's probably little that's more important than trust. Competence, obviously, you want a competent surgeon. Uh, I think I took Tucker Carlson by surprise because I asked him what what he looks for. Uh, you know, what's he, what's important, uh, for him in seeking a surgeon. And, uh, he, I, you could tell he wasn't expecting a question and maybe why he cut me short, <laughs> <laughs> but he, he said competence. And I said, yeah, but how about trust? Isn't trust important? Don't you have to trust your surgeon? I mean, to trust them, you have to believe they're competent. I mean, hopefully that belief is not going to be misplaced. It's going to be justified. And usually it is. I mean, you know, surgeons are usually know what they're doing when they've, especially if they've been at it for a while, and and you know they maintain the practice. You know, you tend to weed out the really bad apples pretty quickly. But then you have the surgeons that are kind of so-so. And I work with them. I work with surgeons that I would never um, go to them myself as a, as a patient. Um, but I've, I've watched them work and say, oh my god, but 
patients survive. They do okay. They may not get the best scar, or they may have a, this complication or that complication. But you know, the human body is pretty resilient and um, can survive an amazing amount of abuse. To be honest, I mean, people do things to the body that are just incredible, and they still. <laughs> Keith Richards, I've got, I've got tickets to go see the Rolling Stones in June. Yeah. My wife and I are not even fans. We just we we can't not go. And uh, I keep thinking Keith Richards died, you know, years ago, but no one ever told him. And, oh my God! I mean, truly, it, the guy is unbelievable. I mean, the abuse his body's been through, and he's he's still walking and talking. You know, it's it's so people can survive bad surgery, bad surgeries, but they shouldn't have to any more than the minimum. You know. Yeah. Possible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Doctor, Dr. Rick, thank you very much for your time and uh, sharing this story. And, and I'm sorry you don't have a whole bunch of nose facts to share for me, but you gave it a good shot. Thanks for uh, exposing me to thinking about this part of life. Like, I've, I've never had plastic surgery, so I've never really thought about it. So it's good to, like, kind of get down in the nitty-gritty of that. I don't. I don't do a lot of men. Men are men. Don't make good patients. To be honest with you. Oh, really? Why? Oh, oh my gosh! They're, they're, uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna get in trouble for saying this, but men are the most difficult patients. They have very poor pain tolerance. Women have a whole different perspective on pain. Huh. I think childbirth gives them that. Okay, so you have that aspect of it. Um, and there's a, a. And and I say this not as a not everybody, but there's a level of narcissism in men seeking cosmetic surgery that you don't see in women. Um, you know, you got to be really careful. One of the, one of the really, and, and this is, this is true. One of the, the patients you have to be most careful about are men seeking rhinoplasties. Um, there's a high level of narcissism and, and, and other perfectionism uh, and, uh, path, and yeah, pathologies that are seen in, in men who are seeking to have a rhinoplasty done, which you don't really see that much in women. Um, and would do you think that translates to men seeking vaginoplasties? Probably, no, I don't think so. I think that's a whole different pathology. Okay, all right, cool. I wonder what what's <laughs> about the man who's uncomfortable with his own nose. That's yeah, that that's a that's that's a interesting interesting problem, and we're dealing with it right now uh, for sure in this country. Uh, the the push to turn men into women and women into men has not abated. It's still still out there. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Very fascinating conversation. Thanks for uh, joining my wife, too. It's great to come. Oh, right. Delightful to meet you both. Thank you for having me uh, come on. Um, if you like, I'll, I'll be better prepared if you ever ask me back on to give you some actual data and statistics. I'm not really a numbers person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, not, that's not been my thing. I, I wasn't the resident in training that when, um, when you know, I, they would ask me a question, I would rattle off the article and the yeah. the the volume and the the author of the article and all that sort of thing like some of my colleagues did but yeah. you know i i've made it through you know 45 years of medicine and, and done i think more good than bad so i think i've been okay oh great no this this conversation was more good than bad i, I never demanded idiotic memory from my guests so i appreciate that thank you that makes me a lot more comfortable <laughs> yeah i yeah, wish i'd done that at the beginning i wouldn't have been so nervous oh that's fine that's fine, fine well thank you very much rick this was fun uh thank you man i, I hope that this will not be our, our last uh communication even if it's only off camera but uh and my regards to your lovely wife absolutely absolutely